Hello there! This show contains material which a truly free society would neither fear nor suppress. The language and concepts contained herein will not cause eternal torment in the place where the guy with the horns and pointed stick conducts his business. Dude, man, what's going on? I'm drinking a bottle of wine. What are you drinking? I'm drinking a bottle of wine that's going to last us an entire month. <laughs> in some ways, that's true, and in, in others, yet not true. It's going to take that long for it to go through me. I don't, I don't, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As if my body isn't leaching enough fluids, John's talking about his bodily fluids. No, nah, I wasn't talking about any fluids. You just made that leap. Okay. Now, so, yeah, we have a confession to make here, and I'm going to, you know, put this out there right now. We are not live. We're never live. Well, we're even less live than we normally are. Normally, we record on a Saturday and kick the show out that following Monday. Yep. And uh, lately, we've been doing the two shows together. No, let's not tell him that. Okay, okay. That spoils the fun. But we'll tell him what's going on this right. month in particular. December's a rough month. I mean, we've got a lot going on. There's a lot. On our collective plates, as it were. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be out of town. I'm going to be uh, hitting the City of Lights in uh, the first week of December. Well, whatever happens there, just leave it there, dude. Yeah. Not the City of Lights is in uh, Paris. Right. The City of Lights is in lights that come off of machines that make weird noises and money supposed and to come out. And there's lots of lights in general, though. I mean, yeah, no doubt about that. Yeah, the city that never sleeps. Now, that's New York. Well, they have lots of light. Never sleep, and and there's sins going on there. Yeah, and legalized prostitution, gambling, and you know, yeah. uh, there's been, it's been rumored that lots of Italian people hung around there <laughs> at one time. No, there was a Jewish guy who who founded the Flamingo there first. Was that Meyer Lansky? Um, what I think it was uh, Warren Beatty. <laughs> He's the one who found. No, he was Bugsy. <laughs> Bugsy Siegel. So yeah, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be spending time in Vegas. I'm gonna be out of town for like two weekends in a row, so it's gonna make it rough to record. So yeah, our our uh, our December is very busy. So what we're doing in advance is recording a couple of shows, putting them in the can, so to speak, and then we're going to release them every other week. So we're not gonna have a show every week like we normally do. It's gonna be. Uh, kicked out every other week so we're going to get back to the normal schedule sometime at the beginning in of the year the new year yeah yep. so we're actually recording these in november and uh, we're going to release them uh, in december yeah so we're drinking one bottle of wine that's going to last us all the way into the new year why don't you tell them about the other big blog type oh well did you tell them what kind of wine it was yeah it's a this is a mandavi i saw mandavi and mandavi makes you know wine and they make some good wines and i had one over thanksgiving by the way uh, but this is a 2005 Veneta, it's private selection, some sort of odd blend, um, mostly Cabernet, and it's pretty good. Yeah, it's good. My taste buds are a little off today because my sinuses are draining. I'm having some bizarre allergy attack in November, the end of November. It's quite stress. odd. Could be stress. It could be leaf mold still. I'm not quite sure, but it's definitely not a cold because I don't have any of the other accompanying symptoms. I'm just draining. It's certainly not golden platinum poisoning. Probably not. <laughs> You know, I haven't done any chemo lately, for example, where they use a lot of platinum. Have you been drinking out of old pipes lately? No. 
No, I haven't. No. Eating paint chips? Uh, I have not. Playing with Chinese toys? Have not. Uh, let's see. What else could you be doing? I've been hanging out with Chinese people, but <laughs> not so much playing with their toys. Swimming in mercury? No. No? No. No, I, I can't figure it out. I'm, I'm probably a bad doctor. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I was going to say it runs in the family, but right. I, I didn't want to, uh, you know, I know, John's dad's a great doctor, actually. He doesn't want to cast any aspersions on anyone else. So what is the other big news that we oh, got yeah. going on with the website, the blog? John has put literally hundreds of hours into- Thousands of man hours. Into a new look. I had to sacrifice chickens to the gods in order to make this thing happen. No, I- Not I, unlike in that movie we're going to talk about. True. I I, uh, I redid the the blog template. We upgraded to Movable Type 4.0 or 4.01, whatever that whatever it is. But it's a, a major upgrade to the old Movable Type, which is a, quite a bit of an improvement. I think that the stability has been increased. If anyone out there is blogging using the old Movable Type 3. Point whatever, uh, I recommend doing an upgrade because it's very very stable. Once I I redid all of the templates and republished the site, I did not see a single error. Yeah, it used to kick up errors when we would re-render pages and publish pages because our, our blog is not dynamically generated. It's static. So whenever we create a new page, it has to save it as a static web page, an HTML file. And, you know, that was giving us problems. But it seems yeah. to be good now. Yeah, and I think that that's, that's what a lot of uh, blogging engines do. They they keep the, a database of all of the content and when the content needs to be published, it renders all the HTML based on all the templates that you've set up ahead of time. The HTML gets kicked out to a static file so that it can be served up more quickly to the end user so there's no database hits. And it's, a, kind of it's a joyous surfing experience for yes, everyone. Yeah, right. Everyone is happy. No one is sad. Yeah, so I, I redid the I, – I took an opportunity to redo the, the, the templates and change the look and feel a bit. We used to have three-column deal where we tried to fit as much content as possible and got some advertising and everything. And I said, you know, let's pare it down to the bare minimum because really what we're all about is serving up the podcast, serving up the content. If we, if we have a long article to write that we do every once in a while, every few months, we want that article to be readable. And we really don't want to have a ton of advertising cluttering up the, the works. Not until it's getting us a lot of money anyway. Yeah, I mean, the advertising so far hasn't been doing anything other than, you know, bring in 2 or $3 a month. So, Which, you know, pays for uh, Band-Aids and spring water, <laughs> you know, if you buy it a gallon at a time and don't drink a lot. Pays for the toilet paper. So... We've got the new blog up there. Uh, I'm still doing some tweaks on it here and there. So if you see anything that you want to change or, or anything that's bugging you, just let us know. And if you're running Firefox 2.0.0.8, perhaps only, only on Ubuntu, the Linux version, you might not be seeing the uh, the banner at the top, our little masthead, as the newspaper calls them. So hopefully uh, Ubuntu Linux will allow me to upgrade my version of Firefox soon. So I can see. Of course, I cannot just go to a different browser, right? I can use Internet Explorer for Linux, right? Internet Destroyer. No, I just use Opera. It's one of my favorite favorite <laughs> things. I used to to work with a guy when when I was doing the whole dot com bubble thing, and and he used to have a, a derogatory name for every single one of the browsers because it was always a, a, a tough thing getting cross browser compat- compatibility. He used to call Netscape Nutscrape. <laughs> <laughs> it was Internet Destroyer and Nutscrape. And what about Opera? Opera didn't exist at that time. How long ago are we talking about? We're talking about in the late 90s, like actually mid-90s, 97, 98. 
Opera's been around, dude. I've been running it forever. When when we were um, doing commercial websites, nobody cared about Opera because it no, was a really did. small percentage. It, it, the great thing about the early versions of Opera were that they would fit on a 1.4 megabyte floppy. You know, you could distribute a web browser on a floppy. That's not true anymore, though. No, and Firefox, which is what I use primarily, you can serve that up. What I like about it, even in Windows, you can serve that up from a dedicated disk so you can put your own uh, settings and everything like on a USB key if you want all your bookmarks and everything. Well, that's the way Unix runs in general. I mean, you you have a, a home directory where you keep all your settings and, you know, everybody can access the main file, but your settings are saved in your local directory. Right. But even Firefox is still taking up more than a, a 1.4 meg floppy. <laughs> oh, dude, way more. Yeah, you need to zip that thing down and and uh, chop it up into pieces to get it onto floppies. But who uses floppies today, anyway? No, my computer actually has a 1.4, in it. I had it built with one just for, I don't even know, fun. My last PC, no floppy. I, I did not get a floppy in it. Yeah, I just got one for posterity. <laughs> for historical reference? Well, I have some things. On, uh, you got some things. On three and a half. You got some things with some stuff. And the guy with the other thing. The guy with the thing, yeah. So we want to jump into a tune? Yeah, let's play something. What do we, uh, we got something good? I got something here from uh, from our friend Josh Fix. Oh, let's check it out. What she calls herself, I know she's not She's so good, she won't even complain When I come home late, smelling like a drain And we're so punk living by the bay Chestnut and Nivis, Starbucks every day She's so good she won't even 
That, that was I was surprised the first time you played it. I don't hear the phrase rock and roll slut all that frequently. <laughs> I like it. I like how they they uh they put the the rock and roll slut next to the old innocent music. The, it's a juxtaposition. There you which go. Which is an, an actual uh, word that we used to, to uh, theme our show on actually, not yes, this show, but the entire concept for the show. Yeah. I mean, if you listen to the words too, it's pretty funny because the uh He's talking about living like a rock and roll or living with a rock and roll slut and then working, doing marketing. And He's PR got a job and, at a good startup. Yeah. Yeah. You know, rock and roll and punk and all that just don't seem to uh, go together with drinking Starbucks every day. Well, you know, we live in a Starbucks ca- coffee world, the, uh, or my favorite coffee shop, Cafe Nervoso. There actually. you go. <laughs> and uh, John knows that reference. Mm-hmm. Does anybody else know that reference? Email us the answer to where is Cafe Nervoso from and you'll win nothing, but we'll mention your name. We'll mention your name on the show. You'll win a free t-shirt. Send us a t-shirt and we'll send it back to you. That's right. And we'll say your name on our show and say you got the reference. Yeah. So that was Josh Fix, rock and roll slut. Um, I like his his style. He does that whole super tramp kind of yellow feel. (laughs) Still not hearing the tramp, You're other not? than in the name slut and tramp being well, you similar. Go. You know, I'm still not hearing the super tramp. Hearing the ELO, though. Lots of ELO going on you there. You just see a regular tramp, not a super tramp. Bev Bevan, Jeff Lynn, it's just all over the place. All over. So yeah. John and I just watched a movie, and actually, I'm pretty sure the subject of the movie wouldn't have been too happy with that last song, because to the best of my ability to uh, hear, there were no synthesizers used in that song. Not at all. It was all samples. Unless unless those little glockenspiel things were samples or something. But Yeah. The 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 movie was Moog. About, and it's not, it, John is saying it correctly. It's M-O-O-G. It's about Bob Moog. It's not Moog. It's Moog. That's actually correct. And even though I'm not an electronic musician per se, you know, I'm not like a keyboardist, Bob Moog is like a huge hero to me and to other people like me in the music industry. And... um Quite by accident, I actually discovered this documentary, right? Wasn't I? You were talking I, about another one. Yeah, this this filmmaker had really... I get the New York Times movie reviews um, on my Google homepage, and I have them emailed to me on a list as well. And they reviewed a film called Helvetica, which is actually a documentary about the typeface Helvetica. And how it changed the world. Yeah. Yeah, in the 50s, apparently, when somebody designed this typeface, they really thought it was going to change the world. And I happened to catch the director's name, and I looked up his filmography, and he had done a documentary on Bob Moog. 
And I emailed John about this and said, oh, that sounds really cool. And I added it to my uh, online queue, you know, the whole getting Mm -hmm. the DVD in the mail thing. And uh, it's actually still down in my queue. And John ended up getting it before me. So he said, well, when you come over today, why don't we just watch this film first and we'll talk about it. Yeah. And I I thought it was pretty cool that the the director did both of these films because I like typefaces. I like typesetting, you know, print layout, that kind of stuff. I still love doing that kind of thing. And I'm I'm into electronic music and the whole history of electronic music and how synthesizers and and uh, electronics have have changed the face of music since you know the 60s and 70s. And we wrote about Bob Moog's death. We briefly eulogized him on the website a few years ago when he died. And um, it was 2005, yeah, yeah, I think so. And in that little eulogy, I think I wrote it. I said something about how he essentially changed the landscape of music forever. Suddenly with the this and he didn't invent the concept of creating sounds electronically. People have been doing that for decades. But he kind of um in first of all coined the term synthesizer. That's his. And the Mini Moog, which is like the groundbreaking instrument, was his baby and what it did was it combined all of these separate modules that he used to make and he combined it into one unit that you and I would look at today. Anybody would look at and go, Oh, that's a synthesizer. Right. And he made it fairly affordable and he put it, he put it on one compact, uh, accessible, easy to use, fun, attractive unit. And he sold a ton of these things to, you know, the early prog rock guys, Keith Emerson, Rick Wakeman, both of whom were featured in the film pretty, pretty extensively. Right. And, uh, I would have rather seen more of Emerson and less of Wakeman. <laughs> Well, the the one person, the one boy slash girl that we didn't see in the film was Walter Wendy Carlos, who did that famous piece in, what did they say, 68 or something called something Switched like, on Bach or yeah. Turned on Bach. I can never remember if it's Switched on I or think Turned it's switched on. switched on Bach. And, this, and he literally switched on Bach. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think when he made the recording, he was Walter or, or I don't know. Mm, I, I don't remember. Yeah. Well, what we're talking about is Walter Carlos, who was born a man and had gender reassignment surgery later on in his life and became Wendy Carlos. And in addition to making switched slash turned on Bach, which whatever that piece is called, a very famous, famous recording of taking Bach pieces and playing them with synthesizers, he, she also did the several pieces on the soundtrack for A Clockwork Orange, which is just slamming a a lot of uh, synthesized Beethoven and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And again, without Bob Moog, you know, sort of combining all of these separate modules into one carryable item maybe somebody else would have done it somebody else probably would have done it but bob moog did it first well it was like the car i mean henry ford didn't invent the car but he in, he invented the the assembly line and he invented the the car that was marketable to more people to actually become a useful item for the middle class yeah, yeah. so i think uh, moog did that for musicians he put it into an accessible package they even talk a little bit about this in the in the film about how they debated whether it even should have a keyboard because they didn't want to, on one hand, they didn't want to uh, be tied down with all of the old uh, old musicians and old instrumentation uh, paradigm. And they wanted to have it be purely electronic. But on the other hand, they wanted it to be accessible. They wanted people to be able to control it in, a, in an easy, accessible way. So they put the keyboard on there. And they say, you know, possibly it could have been something different. Possibly it could have been more groundbreaking. But because it was accessible... It actually became something that they didn't expect. It became something that people use in all sorts of different ways because it was more widespread. 
The earliest uh, Moog module type synthesizers were literally, and when we say modules, they were like little wooden boxes, six by six or eight by eight inches. And each one did one thing and did it very well. You know, each one either created a waveform or modified it in a particular way. And then you used patch cables to patch them together in series. And then you could uh, modify the the input waveform, the sine wave, mm-hmm. the square wave, the sawtooth wave, whatever it was. And... Um, these things were big and you know when you bought dozens of them they were bulky and heavy and they were certainly not conducive to carrying on the road if you're a touring musician and one of the things that Bob Moog talks about extensively in the film and quite passionately about is the fact that to him perhaps the most magical kind of music is live performance right and he liked that people could actually carry his um, later synthesizers like the Mini Moog and the Micro Moog and the Memory Moog and things like that uh, on the road and play with them every day. And, uh, you know, only guys with really incredible amounts of resources like Keith Emerson carried the bigger old school. The ones that were like the size of a building. Yeah, they were like the, a wall. He used yeah. to use that one. I, I can't remember. I, th- I think it's called the Moog Zucra or the Moog Zerka. I, I don't quite I don't remember. remember how it's spelled. But he had this gigantic wall of patch cables and he used to bring it on the road. And as I understand it, he's actually had one of these things restored, and he's still touring with the Moog Zucra, Zucra, whatever it is. And to the typical musician who's out gigging every night playing jazz in little clubs, A, can't afford a Moog Zucra. B, can't afford to carry one around and maintain it. Can't afford the crew. (laughs) Can't afford the crane to lift it into the gig every day. Gas is really expensive these days. You need an extra truck for that. Well, when I was in college, I told Rich about this, when I was in uh, an undergrad um, I took a uh, an electronic music class, and it was one of the most exciting, fun things I've ever done. And this was it was an elective for me, really. Yeah, it was an elective for me. But we used these modules, and this was we didn't have the keyboard. We had these old, ancient modules. I don't know where they got them from. Caves. They found caves. them in like you know Lebanon or something. They dug know. them up. They had to you know dust them, and they they were actually found in Bethlehem in a stable. <laughs> That's right. So, yeah, it was great. I mean, you had one module that was literally a wave generator. You picked the type of wave that it would generate, and it would just generate that wave. You could get adjust the frequency and all of that. But that's it. It was generating a wave. And you didn't hear it. I mean, you didn't hear the wave unless you had it as an output. Right. So, so <laughs> hooked into an amplifier, presumably. Right, hooked into an amplifier. But you could use the wave. This is the cool thing. It's like, almost like programming. You could take the wave. That's probably like a sawtooth. You take the oh, wave. Come on. It's a sine wave with some harmonics. <laughs> and there's some nasal problems in there. <laughs> yeah. So you take the sine wave and you could use it as the the an audio signal or you can use it as a modifier, modifier on something else. Modifier for the other waves, sure. Yeah, so you could you string could all these waves together. and do all sorts of strange things. Yeah, and then some of the other cooler modules were there was a, uh, I can't remember what it was called, but it was like a sequence generator. And we saw this in the in the film, like this little series of lights going constantly. It was like a running light It was thing. like the bionic man's eye. It was or like the thing on the front of the uh, Knight Rider. They call it they call it chase. There you go. When the lights follow one another, like on a marquee, they call that chase mode. So the lights were chasing. Right. But what this thing would do is it's essentially it's just a trigger. So you could time it so that it would trigger something. And then when the, you put the output into the wave generator, it would trigger the wave getting kicked off. Or if you triggered into like a uh, an envelope filter or something, it would trigger the filter being applied. So it was great. You'd, you'd literally be doing plumbing. You'd have patch cables all over the place just to get the right sound. You'd spend like two hours working on the greatest sound in the world. 
And you'd have to write down on a piece of paper all the different patch cables, all the positions, all the different settings so that you can reproduce it. Like today, now, you get a sound, you hit memory, and you're done. Right, right. So, yeah, that was a, it was a great class. It, you, you are learning about how sound is actually generated. You actually learn about a lot of the real world because one of the things that we tried to do is emulate real sounds with the electronic uh, components. Yeah, I mean, that was the... I mean, that was one half of what they were doing probably in the beginning, right? A lot of the people were trying to emulate organic sounds, harpsichords. I've heard some very good harpsichord emulations, for example. And then there were other people who were just trying to make sounds that were otherworldly, you know? You had this amazing tool in front of you that could create a sonic palette that was unlike anything anyone had ever heard. I mean, most of us have been exposed, up until that point in time anyway, most people had been exposed to piano, brass instruments, mm-hmm. uh, wooden, woodwind type instruments, and um, guitars. And, you know, the palette was actually pretty narrow, if you think about it. Stringed instruments, yep. brass instruments, percussion. You know, I mean, what else is there? Um, theremins. No, wait, they didn't have those. So these guys just ended up introducing to the world this amazing sonic palette and um, just taking music in places it simply had never gone before. Thank you, Bob Moog. Yeah, one of the things that I did was instead of trying to emulate uh, an um, instrument, in my final um, project, we didn't have an exam, we had a final project, we had to develop some sort of piece, put it together, record it, and then play it back. What I did is I, I used the the analog synthesizer to create all sorts of sounds that you'd hear in a dentist office and then i i put those together and then i i took uh, a standard like a little uh dx7 like a yamaha dx7 which uses fm synthesis by the way right and i what i did is i used that as background and used the 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 analog synthesizer as foreground sounds but what i i recorded like this little cheesy uh, music kind of riff and then i just cranked the hell out of the the distortion on that so you could just hear it like coming out of a tinny speaker and that was the background sort of bed and then it had all these analog sounds that, that really made you cringe so it was a lot of fun and um by the way the company i work for sells patch cables to a company that still manufactures the big modular analog synthesizers and if you want to see get a feeling for what we're talking about with these separate analog uh, components or modules, go to a website and it's really easy. It's synthesizers.com. And these guys are still making in wooden cabinets these beautiful old school analog synthesizers. And um, some of the products that we make where I work actually get shipped along with those, the patch cables and stuff like that. So it's kind of cool. That kind of synthesis is not dead. Just because Bob Moog um, combined them all into one cabinet doesn't just, mean just it's because gone. he's dead doesn't mean that the right. stuff's dead. That's right. Yeah, and it's Absolutely. a lot of fun. And it's actually coming back now, too, because a lot of people are realizing that, that it's uh, you can get some... Well, I mean, even if you could sim- simulate those same analog sounds with a, a digital synthesizer today, it, there's something more visceral about creating those sounds with an old analog machine. Even the sampled analog waveforms don't sound quite right to me. Uh, the new thing that companies like Roland and Yamaha are doing is they're creating digital waveform generators. So they're creating analog modeling synthesizers using digital technology to create the waveforms from the from the get. So there's sort of this new rebirth of um, analog vis-a-vis another means, if you will, yeah. uh, that's happening today too. Yeah, well, with that uh, being said and done, I think you should check out the film. It's, uh, I think it's a 2004 film. 
Was it that old? Yeah. It must be before Bob Moog died because he died in 05. Oh, oh, let me just mention one more thing. A friend of mine sent me an email a month or so ago. Sequential Circuits was in the early 80s one of the big um, keyboard makers. The Prophet series of synthesizers. Your brother had a Prophet 10, I think. Mm-hmm. And they just came out with a keyboard called the Prophet 8. And so they basically took a Prophet. A Prophet 10 was just two Prophet 5s glued together. There were two separate keyboards and you could get 10 voices because each key keyboard had five right. and you had to use one hand on one set of the keys and one hand on another set of the keys and you got 10 voices. Yeah, two rows. Two rows of keys. All they did was glue two instruments together. Well, he came, you know, with analog synthesis being in demand again, the guy who uh, invented or created sequential circuits released an instrument very recently called the Prophet 8. And what it is is it's taking a Prophet 5, giving it eight voices instead of five and having one keyboard and just giving it lots of cool memory and, you know, ways to store patches, digital ways to store patches and everything. Basically, he's taken the Prophet 5, added more voices, and really brought it into the new millennium. And there's, we'll have to check it out later because on the internet, he has all kinds of recordings of the old school analog waveforms and you know it's it's awesome and i was thrilled when um when my friend leo sent me that link because you know i love the way analog synthesis sounds and i mean i mean an analog guy in in general and I you are it. an analog uh, analog man wasn't that a rush song <laughs> a couple back 20 years ago on that one record you know i, I don't remember you know, analog man I don't know. Running Man. I think there was Digital Man and Analog Man. They were on the same record. I, I don't know. I don't know anything about it. One of them it. was intrinsically better. Coke and Pepsi, baby. <laughs> it's all about the Coke and the Pepsi. Right. All right. Bob Moog, 2000-something film, and uh, you should check him out because he Is, talks about- Isn't it about, just called Moog? M-O-O-G? It, yeah, it's called Moog. It's about Bob Moog, and you learn about his uh, garden. It was made by this- <laughs> You do learn about his gardening, and the fact that he's a little- mystical spiritual as well and I, I didn't expect that side of him because here he was sitting in his garden or standing in his garden with a pocket protector full of pens and a slide rule and he's talking about the that mystical realm where a musician goes where he's really in tune with his instrument but yet no one knows what's going on with the brain chemistry and we can't quite explain it but there's some weird connection being made and i was i was very surprised by that yeah, and he was alluding to being able to animals and people being able to control machines with their mind no, yeah. no contact he at got all. a little weird actually at one point but yeah. great man nonetheless and a great film and it was made by what like a swedish or something filmmaker don't remember i'll put it online though yeah we'll check it out so we got another tune we do well, let's check it out a little nonsense now and then garaged by the wisest Now and then 
the wisest man. A little nonsense now and then is relished by the wisest man. A little nonsense now and then is relished by the wisest man. was Mr. Willy Wonka, actually. It was. And the first thing I have to say is they decided to put the clips from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory on that recording, so don't go after us. Go after them. <laughs> the band is called Echolin, and we thank you very much for letting us play that. Well, you know that it has nothing to do with reality, with who you get sued for this stuff. I mean... All we have to do is think about Willy Wonka, and they'll be coming to us and saying, we owe royalties. That was a, a little ditty called A Little Nonsense, for those who couldn't figure it out. And uh, my other thought, and I looked at John in the middle of the song, and I definitely heard an analog keyboard solo in mm-hmm. there. And somebody got a little funky with the uh, the pan knob, actually. They were kind of doing this kind of thing and, like, moving the guy. I've never done this before, but they were moving the uh, guitar, uh, keyboard solo and the rhythm guitar back and forth and left and right. I'm just twiddling and freaking everybody out right now. You made me nauseous. I'm going to puke. I twaddled. You need a little, uh, you know Whoa. what I learned? Mythbusters, if you take ginger pills, it helps with... Uh, Motion sickness. Really? I don't yeah. get motion sickness, really. I don't really either. Last time I went flying, I didn't get motion sickness. That's because the pilot was a an ex-military guy and really knew what he was doing. Yeah, but it was cool. I was hanging my head out, looking at Niagara Falls. Did I you got... open the door and, like, hang over? Or? No, you can't open the door because you'll fall out and die. You, no, not necessarily. We didn't have parachutes. Do you have, like, seat belts? We had seat belts. Well, then you're not going to fall out and but die. But I wasn't wearing a seat belt. 
then it's good that the door didn't get open. You know why I wasn't wearing a seatbelt? <laughs> because you needed to photograph things and go from the left and right side of the plane to the right and left side of the plane. No, because the stewardess didn't tell me. We didn't have a stewardess. Oh, the little bing, the light didn't come on. The light didn't come on. No. No, it's cool. It's now, did cool. you use the bathroom in the back of the cabin? <laughs> or no, did you just use the cabin? For that, I just popped the window open. <laughs> urinated on Leaned the, out. Urinated on the tourists of Niagara Falls. People are saying, it's raining. <laughs> it's yellow rain. <laughs> right. It's the acid rain thing that New York State is famous for. I really should put up one of those photos on, in our gallery of us hanging right you over the falls. We're going to. I was I going recall. to, and I keep forgetting. I'm. You know what? I'm going to put tie a string around my finger or other appendage. All right. So I just want to mention briefly a film that I watched the other night, actually. And it's a a little thing called The Flying Scotsman. And this film is about a cyclist named Graham Obrey, who wrote a book by that name. And it's kind of his biography. I don't know if it's a, an autobiography or just a, a biography and he had help. Maybe he had a ghostwriter. Autobiography? You mean a biography about cars? Could have been. And this guy is famous for kind of being a track specialist. You know, he did do some road racing in his day. He's a cyclist. He did do some road racing. But what he ended up doing was going after a record called the Hour Record. And basically, you get in a velodrome, an indoor bike track with a bike. You ride for an hour as hard as you can, and then they measure how far you went. And that is the record that you're trying to break. And the guy who had held the record for eight years was uh, an Italian a little guy named Francesco Moser. I think he's Italian anyway. He could be Spanish with a name like that, couldn't he? He's from that region. It he's, would be Francisco. Yeah, I guess it would be. So I think he's an Italian guy. Francesco Moser, and he rode a bicycle that my friend Rich, a very good cyclist, affectionately referred to when the record got broken. He referred to Francesco's bike as the ass burner because it had this gigantic disc wheel on the back that literally went up right to the seat. It was like, you know, a four and a half or five foot diameter disc wheel. And it literally went right up to under the saddle. So my friend just jokingly referred to it as the ass burner. And that record stood for eight years. And along comes Graham Obrey with this homemade bicycle, right? And he completely redesigned the geometry of the frame because he got into his own personal biomechanics and he realized that he didn't like, for example, the pedals being really far apart. He wanted the pedals closer together, and what that meant was a narrow bottom bracket. So he had to go and completely redesign the bike. And not that this film is entirely about the hour record. It's also about his struggle with depression and some personal problems he had over the years. But it's cycling intermixed with this human interest drama as well. And get into his relationship with uh, Kirk at all? Kirk? Oh, different Scotsman. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I was, of course, going with that. And in any case, he ended up breaking the record, the hour record, held by Francesco Moser, and he did it on this bike. And one of the unique things about this bike was the aerodynamic position he was in when he was riding. He was always amazed that downhill skiers would get into that tuck, and they would bring their poles in really close to their chest. So he thought, well, this there must be something going on here. So he designed the handlebars so that they were actually really close to his chest and they were really small. So his arm, I'm showing John, you guys can't see it, but just imagine a downhill skier on a bike and that's what you've got. He had the handlebars like right in front of his chest and his first record stood, but then they outlawed that position. Ah. The people in the UCI, the guys who govern cycling, thought it was inelegant and ugly, so they outlawed the position. And then he kind ridiculous. of ridiculous, yeah. And then he kind of came up with the next position, which they called the Superman position. Ass first. 
No, that would have been powdered toast man position, That's actually. Right. <laughs> That's right. But um, so he came up with the Superman position, which was a lot like you see the guys in the triathlon bikes. They've got the arrow bars and they've got their hands out in front of the bars, except his was like super elongated. Like I'm going to just step away from the microphone and show John. You know, he was kind of like way out there. Feet out. Well, feet on the pedals, but hands, you know, his wrist as far in front as you could be. And his record, when he broke Moser's record, a week or a month later, it got broken by Chris Boardman, uh, a very famous British cyclist. Lotus built his bike, by the way, and they Mm -hmm. spent like a million dollars on the development of it. And my friend Rich, that great cyclist I was talking about before, owned one. The The Lotus Super time trial bike. He actually had one. It's just this amazing bike. So then Obrey came back with the Superman position and broke the record again. It's since been broken numerous times and they've actually broken the hour record up into two different kinds of records there's the unlimited like the funny car record where you can be on a super aerodynamic time trial bike but the record that they regard as official now they want you to break it on a regular bike with just good old-fashioned handlebars just get out there grit it out suffer for an hour and see if you can break the record so they've kind of broken it into two and again not that this film was all about the hour record it certainly delved into a lot of graham obrey's personal life and the his struggle with depression and uh it was a, one of these films that i pitched john the idea fairly recently of doing uh shows about films with unlikely subject matters that ended up being really great and this is an john couldn't really think of any good examples or not many and this is just another one of those films that would have made my list now because you know and another film for example that would have been on my list would have been something like searching for bobby fisher right? right chess kid learns how to play chess you know he wants to become a grandmaster or whatever and and the struggles of, of dealing with this gift that he was given and all that. So I, I, Gandhi teaches him how to play chess. And Gandhi did teach him how to play chess. John's referring to Ben Kingsley, who was in another film that he needs to see really soon called um, 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 Sexy Beast, which was really good that Kingsley was in. But anyway, uh, The Flying Scotsman, it's just come out. And uh, another film, by the way, that I'm going to mention just very briefly that just came out on DVD is a little musical called Once that I talked about uh, lovingly right. a few months ago. And that just came out on DVD. So I would definitely recommend that as well but anyway john i think that's a sure what do you think it's not okay it's too late now so it's like what it's the middle of december hopefully uh where you are it's not too snowy and crazy out hopefully where we are is not too snowy and crazy it already is snowy out here but it's not uh, so crazy though real time november fake time december we've we've got snow we've got snow all over the place who knows but anyway you've been listening to blood the thirsty vegetarians my name's rich wilgus i'm john tellerico and we'll uh, check you out around christmas time yep check us out on the web www.bloodyveg.com the new blog Hit our forum, bloodyveg.com slash forum. Nothing there has changed other than uh, maybe a couple of posts. Yep. And uh, leave us feedback to feedback at bloodyveg.com. Let us know how your uh, winter is going and all that good stuff. Stay warm. Be cool. And remember, you're listening to the VIB. VIB.